When I was a kid, one of the things I liked the most about long car trips was driving through a remote area at night and picking up faraway stations on the AM radio. There was something about the combination of the darkness, the location, and the sounds drifting in and out that seemed magical to me. A guy named Richard O. Link was doing the same thing one night in 1953, tuning into tiny stations as part of his job with Capitol Records. He landed on one that was playing a comedy routine that had been put out by a tiny record label. The guy performing the act was a high school music teacher named Andy Griffith, and his routine had been polished through dozens of performances at local Kiwanis club meetings and the like. It was called What It Was Was Football, and it was told from the viewpoint of a country bumpkin seeing a game for the first time. After a while, I seen what it was that there's odd man in fault. It was that both bunches full of them men wanted this funny-looking little pumpkin to play with. <laughs> they did, and I know, friends, that they couldn't eat it because they kicked it the whole evening and it never busted. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, what I was telling was that both bunches full wanted that thing, and one bunch got it, and it made the other bunch just as mad as they could be, and friends, I seen that evening the awfulest fight that I have ever seen in my life. I did. They would run at one another and kick one another and throw one another down and stomp on one another and grind their feet in one another and I don't know what all, and just as fast as one of them would get hurt, they'd tote him off and run another note. Years later, Link told an interviewer that the more he listened to the routine, the more he was convinced that he was hearing something more. He was hearing his future. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. I'm David Inman. Thanks for coming to the Potluck. Back in 1984, I was writing freelance articles for a magazine with the forward-looking title VCR. The home recording revolution was heating up, and in every issue I would list the 10 best episodes of a classic sitcom that people could tape if they were too cheap to just buy or rent the official version. One month I decided to tackle one of my favorites, The Andy Griffith Show. In that very quaint way we did things in the 1980s, I got out a piece of paper and I wrote what was known in those days as a letter to Griffith's manager, Richard O. Link. About three weeks later, my phone rang. David, Dick Link. The person on the other end sounded like such a stereotype that I thought it was a joke. This wasn't a guy. This was a character from a smoke-filled newsroom in an old movie. But it was Dick Link, the guy who discovered Andy Griffith way back in 1953 and who was still his manager. He was very friendly about setting up an interview with Andy Griffith, which happened a few days later. I'll never forget it, but unfortunately, my badly recorded cassette tape of Andy Griffith talking and me nervously laughing like an idiot is long gone. 
Unfortunately, The Andy Griffith Show remains as strong a presence on TV as ever, even though it left the air 50, that's right, 50 years ago, after eight seasons and 249 episodes. The Andy Griffith Show was Andy Griffith's best work, certainly his most personal, and it was outrageously successful. It was never out of the top ten for its entire run, and it finished its final season as the number one show on TV. That's a feat that's been duplicated only by I Love Lucy and Seinfeld. It's the story, as if you didn't know, of a small-town sheriff in North Carolina. Andy Taylor, played by Griffith, is a widower who lives in Mayberry with his son Opie, played by Ron Howard, and Aunt B, played by Francis Bavier. Andy's sidekick is Deputy Barney Fife, played by Don Knotts. Andy also interacts with the citizens of the town, including Barber Floyd Lawson, played by Howard McNear, gas station attendant Gomer Pyle, played by Jim Neighbors, and girlfriend Helen Crump, played by Anita Corso. He never won an Emmy Award, but Andy Griffith was the guiding creative force behind the show. He grew up in the area where it took place, and scripts included references to local towns and landmarks. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, though, let's go back to Richard Link and that comedy record. Griffith had recorded what it was was football for a small label called Colonial Records. Link had capital buy the rights for $10,000 and offer it nationally. It sold over one million copies. Link also put Griffith under personal contract. The contrast between the two men was striking. Link was a slick, well-dressed, fast-talking Easterner, and Andy Griffith was a genial, slow-talking Southerner. Griffith recalled that when they initially met, his first impression of Link was that his teeth were too close together. But Link was paying Griffith $300 a week, and that was certainly more than he was making teaching music to high school students. The success of What It Was Was Football was followed by appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show and the lead role in a comedy presented on the U.S. Steel Hour called No Time for Sergeants, where Griffith played a naive military recruit named Will Stockdale. Howdy, I'm Will Stockdale. Mm -hmm. I heard what you said out there about this being your home and all, mm -hmm. and it is a right nice barracks. I mean, it's the nicest barracks I've ever seen. So I wouldn't want you to get the idea that it was because we didn't like your barracks or because we didn't like you. That ain't the case at all. See, it's just that Ben's whole family's been in the infantry. That's Ben Whitledge, my buddy, sitting out there on his duffel bag. So naturally, he don't want to be in no air force. <laughs> See, it ain't nothing personal against you that we're leaving. It's just that the infantry's the real soldiers and the air force ain't nothing but helpers. <laughs> the character of Will Stockdale was similar to the one on the football record and of another military recruit yet to come named Gomer Pyle. No Time for Sergeants was so successful that it was turned into a Broadway play, again with Griffith in the lead role. The supporting cast included Don Knotts, and a friendship developed between the two men. By now, Andy Griffith was far more than a one-hit wonder, and Link had helped make him a hot property. Next came movies. Griffith played against type as a ruthless, 
megalomaniac TV personality in A Face in the Crowd, and after that came the film version of No Time for Sergeants. Then in 1959, Griffith was back on Broadway in a musical version of the comedy western Destry Rides Again, called simply Destry. Then a call came from the West Coast. Sheldon Leonard, producer of The Danny Thomas Show, wanted to meet with Griffith and Link about a TV series. At that point, The Danny Thomas Show was tremendously popular, and Leonard was one of the most respected TV producers in the business. He'd begun as a movie actor in roles as tough guys, sometimes in gangster movies, sometimes in comedies. He'd helped guide Thomas's show from the beginning. Like The Dick Van Dyke Show, it was a sitcom with a show business setting. Thomas played a nightclub comic named Danny Williams, and the show was divided between his appearances on stage and his home life with a patient wife and wisecracking kids. The Danny Thomas Show, also known as Make Room for Daddy, began its run on ABC, then known as the Perennial Third Place Network. But in the fall of 1957, after four seasons on the air, the series switched to CBS, placed in the prime Monday night time slot that had just been vacated by I Love Lucy. It was rarely out of the top ten in the ratings. So when Sheldon Leonard talked, Andy Griffith listened. Leonard had turned to one of Danny Thomas's writers, Arthur Stander, to come up with a concept where Griffith played a small-town sheriff who was also Justice of the Peace and the publisher of the local newspaper. Griffith would say later that he wasn't crazy about the concept, but he liked and respected Leonard. So in January 1960, Griffith and Link went to Hollywood to film an episode of The Danny Thomas Show called Danny Meets Andy Griffith. Sheriff Andy stops Danny for running a stop sign, and when Danny fights the ticket and appeals to the Justice of the Peace, he finds out, well, you already know what he finds out. Have your driver's license? Yeah, you can have my driver's license. You'll kindly take a look at my name. You'll discover that I'm somebody. Well, you know I, you know I knew that the minute I laid eyes on you. Huh? Yes, sir. I never seen a car yet that wasn't being driven by somebody. <laughs> Look, you want to ad-lib with me, Hayseed? Honey, why don't you stop arguing? After all, you did go through a stop sign. But there was no road there. Whoever heard of a stop sign where there's no road? <laughs> well, now, the town council did vote to put a road in there. About, oh, I believe it, about six years ago, I believe it was. Only trouble is, so far, we just raised enough money for the stop sign. Griffith's character in the pilot is crafty, kind of a small-town Sergeant Bilko. And almost immediately, the sponsor of Thomas's show, General Foods, also signed up to sponsor The Andy Griffith Show. And it was placed in the same strong Monday night lineup on CBS. By the time The Andy Griffith Show premiered in the fall of 1960, a couple of significant changes had been made to give the show more heart and humor. One was to introduce a new housekeeper, played by uh, Francis Bavier, Andy's Aunt B. The other was to introduce Andy's deputy and his cousin, Bernard Milton Fife, played by Don Knotts. Knotts and Griffith were already friends, and when Knotts heard about the show, he called Griffith and suggested that Andy needed a deputy to play off of. 
The pilot had already been shot, but Knott's was hastily added. His scenes in the first episode are completely separate from the main story, that of Opie's acceptance of Aunt B. Deputy Bynum, fire reporting, sir, with an important message. Barney, I've told you, you don't have to do that. This ain't the army, you see, it's just me and you. Well, shucks, Andy, I want to do good on this job. Even if it's just delivering messages, I want to do it right. Well, I know you do, and, and, and I admire your attitude. You see, Andy, I want the folks in this town to realize that you picked me to be your deputy because you, well, you, you looked over all the candidates for the job, and you, you judged their qualifications and their character and their ability, and you come to the fair, the just, and the honest conclusion that I was the best suited for the job. <laughs> And, and I want to thank you, Cousin Andy. <laughs> You're welcome, Cousin Bart. Yes, sir. When I talked to Andy Griffith in 1984, he told me that when they filmed the show's second episode, Manhunt, he really began to see how everything was going to come together. Barney is in the forefront in this episode. He unwittingly helps a convict escape, and Andy, working behind the scenes, tricks the escapee into taking a leaky rowboat ensuring his capture. And the pattern was set. Barney would be hyper-aggressive in stopping what little crime happened in Mayberry, usually botching it, and Andy would subtly diffuse the situation. But Griffith was still known as a comedian, and in the show's ninth episode, titled A Feud is a Feud, he was to counsel feuding families with a backwoods version of Romeo and Juliet, another one of his record hits. That episode, he told me in 1984, was never worth a tinker's dam. He knew by then that Andy worked best as a reactor to the people and events around him, and he hated speaking in an exaggerated southern accent. So the supporting cast grew more prominent in the stories, and Griffith began toning down Andy's twang. It's frightening to think how close Don Knotts came to not even being a part of The Andy Griffith Show because the relationship between Andy and Barney was really the glue that held the show together, and it was sorely missed when Don Knotts left the show after five seasons. Griffith had a model in mind for that relationship. In 1984, he told me that one of his personal favorite shows was a radio serial from the 1930s and 40s called Lum and Abner. It was created and performed by two native Arkansans, and it took place in a fictional town of Pine Ridge, Arkansas. But Lum and Abner would have fit in in Mayberry. You see, Abner, during an era of world conflict and strife, the lamp of learning burns low. Huh? I got that from Miss Melrose. Huh? <laughs> Granny, there's a smart woman, you know it. Yeah, but now exactly just what does it mean, Mom? What? what you said. It means that the lamp of learning is burning low now. Uh, well, it's daytime now. You don't need a lamp on now, no way, Well, Mom. I don't mean that kind of a lamp. Uh, <laughs> uh, what other kind of lamps is it? Well, I don't know. It's hard to explain to somebody like you, Abner, but, well, you see, in, in times like these, it's up to a few of us brainy people, like me and Miss Melrose. Uh, it's up to us to keep the lamp, I mean, to keep up the book learning and the culture and all that. In special, we got to keep the language pure. Well, why do we, Lum? Well, because, well, you see, during war times, Abner, lots of slang words get into the language, and we got to keep them out, that's all. Well, why do we? Well, because, 
Well, because we have to keep the language pure. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. Well, why do we have to keep the language pure? Hey, Granny Zabner, for a fellow your size, you can ask too many questions, you know. <laughs> now, hash up and try to learn some of this grammar stuff. It'll do you good. Yeah, well, I've got some other stuff to do, I think, Mom. I better go. No, no, this won't take long. Sit down now. Sit right oh, down there. me. If every fellow just spent a few minutes a day learning something, he wouldn't be so ignorant at the end of the year. Compare that to this scene between Andy and Barney from the episode Class Reunion. <laughs> Hey, you're cutless. Huh? Old high school yearbook. I ain't seen one of these for years. Ain't B gave mine away to a disease drive. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Let me see. Look at that. <laughs> Andrew Jackson Taylor, uh, second vice president, 4-H, secretary, Philomathian Literary Society. Yeah. Uh. <clears throat> what was that Philomathian, Ange? It was a group that got, that got together and cut out current events and pasted them in a book. <laughs> Sorry I didn't get in on that. Sounds like fun. Well, you was up for it. Well, we won't get into that. Would you look at that head of hair? There must be 10 pounds of it. <laughs> Did somebody blackball me or something? Jack Egbert didn't like you. Don't you remember I told you about it and you cried? <laughs> oh, yeah. Jack Egbert. Hey. Hey, look at you, Bob. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was painfully thin then. Yeah, you was mighty slow in filling out. Yeah. Well, I got my mother's family's frame. When I was 17, I could reach into a milk bottle and take out an egg. And you can't do that anymore. No. <laughs> that proves you filled out yeah. some. Yeah. You want to know something? Jack Egbert was no prize. Bernard Milton Fife, Board of Directors, Ten Fall Drive, Hall Monitor, Volleyball Court Maintenance Crew, Spanish Club. I didn't know you was in Spanish Club. See. <laughs> the scenes between those two men were what made the show so special, and they rarely contained any jokes. The comedy came from the way they reacted to each other, and there was also a relaxed warmth and familiarity that came through. The Andy Griffith Show was immediately popular. It was always comfortably hammocked on Monday night with the likes of The Lucy Show and The Danny Thomas Show. So there was little or no interference with Griffith's vision. Everyone was happy, especially the sponsor, General Foods. You can still see Griffith in the cast doing commercials for Post Toasties or Sanka on YouTube. Knott's won five Emmy Awards as Barney, and Francis Bavier won one as Aunt B. When the show began, Griffith and Knott's had it informally agreed to end the series after five years. So in 1965, Knotts was ready to fly the coop, and he made a movie for Universal called The Ghost and Mr. Chicken. It was a huge hit in small-town theaters and drive-ins, and Knotts signed a long-term contract with Universal. Andy Griffith, on the other hand, was tempted by money, lots of it, to stay in Mayberry. So he agreed to do The Andy Griffith Show until 1968. Knotts would still make occasional appearances as Barney, and it was explained that he'd moved to Raleigh to work for the police department in a menial job. 
1965, the series had built a strong supporting cast. Beyond Ron Howard and Francis Bavier, there was George Lindsay as Goober, Howard McNear as Floyd, and Hal Smith as town drunk Otis Campbell. But without knots, the series lost comedic strength and a good deal of its heart. The show began being broadcast in color, and strangely, it was a move that seemed to drain Mayberry of life. Almost anyone will tell you that the first five seasons of The Andy Griffith Show are stronger than the final three. The show's best year, arguably, was 1963. Knotts was still around, Jim Neighbors was a regular as Gomer Pyle, and the episodes included the memorable Man in a Hurry, in which a hard-driving businessman's car breaks down in Mayberry and he learns to relax, and Barney's first car. That same year, TV Guide, which had always been slightly patronizing toward the show, and to Griffith, printed an article about the story's admirers, including Rod Serling, Sir Cedric Hardwick, Frank Sinatra, and Gypsy Rose Lee. Serling told the magazine, It's one of the few genuinely funny comedies in the medium. What hits me is that the people are all characters and not caricatures. Carl Reiner, creator of The Dick Van Dyke Show, was also a fan. He told the magazine, On that show, they're a lot more hip than homespun. Well, Andy Griffith was not one to cater to the hip. But if they caught up with him, that was fine. The Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck is written, researched, and narrated by me, David Inman. Thanks for listening. If you listen to us on iTunes, please consider subscribing to the show and also rating us. That helps other people find us. You can also find episodes on the Incredible Inman Facebook page or at IncredibleInman.com on the podcast page. See you later.